Welcome to Agency Nation Radio. This is Charles Symington, Big Eye EVP, and I'm joined today by Nathan Rydell, VP of Political Affairs. And we're here today to discuss the upcoming 2022 midterm elections. And I don't have to tell you, Nathan, that midterm elections are typically a referendum on the president's party. And with Democrats in control of all levers of government in DC, the White House, the Senate, and the House, that's certainly the case this year. And as we look to try to prognosticate and forecast election results, there are a number of, I'll call them consistent tried and true factors that we look to in determining the overall political environment. Now, these are indicators that really have stood the test of time as we look into our uh, crystal balls, so to speak. So Nathan, let's start there and begin with the first factor, and that's the generic ballot. So Nathan, tell us, you know, what's the generic ballot? What does it do? And what is it telling us two weeks prior to this year's election? Well, thanks, Charles. You know, it's good to be with you today on Agency Nation Radio. And uh, before I jump into that generic ballot, I uh, just wanted to, to lay the table a little bit, set the table a little bit, and just say how thankful I am that you and I can, can have this conversation, cut through a lot of the noise that's out there right now. You know, where people get their news these days can drastically determine uh, how they view things. And so we're just giving you guys a, a real uh, cut through the noise lay of the land right now. And as you said, that starts with uh, these factors, the first being the generic ballot, as you asked about. Uh, we've seen that generic ballot really move the last couple weeks in particular. About two weeks ago, it was about even. Uh, around 45, 45. If you were asked, are you going to vote for a Republican or a Democrat in the upcoming election? Uh, it was about even. Today, and that's with no candidate names associated, right, Nathan? It's a straight up party versus party. Correct. Just party versus party. And this is sampled across the entire universe uh, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Uh, so today, that stands at 48% Republican. 45% Democrat. Nathan, to me, that sounds like a slight Republican advantage, obviously a difference of three points, but it's actually a little bit deceiving. And, and, and why don't you explain why? Yeah, great question, Charles. So historically on this question, uh, Republicans are undersampled when you look at uh, where the outcome ends up being. Uh, there's generally about 2% skew. So you can add two points to that Republican advantage right now. It's probably more like uh, 49, 44, or 50, 45. So about a five-point advantage right now for Republicans on that generic ballot. So obviously advantage there to the Republicans. Another factor, Nathan, that of course, you know, we try to look to, and that's the presidential approval rating. You know, I, I said it in the opening that uh, these midterm elections are primarily a referendum on the president's party. And so why don't you tell us where the presidential approval rating stands right now for Joe Biden? Well, today, the presidential approval rate stands around 42% approve of President Biden and 54% disapprove. Now, looking back at this in historical context, uh, you mentioned uh, these midterm elections are generally a referendum on the party in power. When you have a sitting president who's hovering in the low 40s, uh, that really pretends to there being a wave election in that midterm. Uh, looking back at the most recent midterm election under President Trump in 2018, we saw his approval rating hovering right around 40 percent. 
And going even further back, 2014 and 2010 under Obama, his approval rating was again hovering in that low 40s. And in all of those elections, we saw uh, wave elections, especially in the House of Representatives, Charles. So, so history does kind of tell a tale of what we might expect in the future. I know that's going to be a, a kind of a recurring theme as we talk about the election, right? Looking back to try to uh, project forward. But let's talk about another, before we get to that, let's talk about another factor uh, that you look to generally. And that's the, uh, it's called the right track, wrong track, right? It's the direction of the country, the general question that you ask uh, likely voters. Tell us where that stands. Yeah, today that question stands at 26% say we're on the right track and 67% say the wrong track. Whoa, that's a pretty big number on the wrong track, Nathan. It, it is a big number, and we're actually seeing that get a little worse with each passing week as we've been tracking this. Uh, I saw several polls out, and uh, I'll note that we get most of this information from Gallup and uh, Real Clear Politics, which, uh, which compiles polls across the spectrum. Uh, we've seen that wrong track number go up to uh, clip 70% wrong track in so several recent polls. So the uh, the momentum is clearly moving against uh, this party in power and this president. So obviously that's a big number, as I said, but it's not um, unreasonable when you think about uh, some of the issues, right, where this election is being played. Some of those issues that voters really care about. Uh, and where the president stands on those issues with voters. Can you uh, run through some of those issues? I think our folks are probably probably going to be pretty familiar with them, and there's some issues that are important to them, but maybe you can talk about the kind of the top issues and then uh, where the president stands on each one. You bet, Charles. Well, as you alluded to, I think our listeners uh, clearly are seeing campaign commercials these days. <laughs> you know, you can't watch. Probably way too, probably way too many. <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was going to say you couldn't watch uh, NFL on Sunday without being inundated with, with three or four campaign commercials during each break. So it'll come as no surprise that the issues that this election is really coming down to are crime and safety. That's become a very big one, especially in urban and suburban areas. Inflation in the economy is, is up there. It's actually the number one ranked issue among voters. Uh, in a recent New York Times Siena poll, I believe it was 44% of respondents said that uh, inflation was going to determine uh, their number one determination how they cast their ballot. Well, all you have to do is go to the grocery store or the gas station. That certainly makes sense these days. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and another issue right now is uh, is immigration. That's definitely less than than those other two. I mentioned crime and safety and inflation in the economy, uh, but it's still on on voters' minds. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the Dobbs decision looms large also. Yeah, let's talk a little, little bit about that, because, you know, of course, now we've had a couple of months, you know, several months uh, since the Dobbs decision came out. And obviously that was garnering a lot of attention uh, in the summertime. And that seemed to change the, you know, this historic landscape a little bit, right? Like it was leaning towards Republicans going into the summer and then Dobbs kind of shook that up a little bit and, you know, maybe turned it on its head and, and leveled the playing field uh, where Democrats kind of were feeling their oats and um, thought that uh, maybe it was more of a, of a neutral election environment. Talk to us about, you know, where Dobbs stands now and where abortion stands now as we are two weeks out from the election. Yeah, I think you summarized that really well, Charles. You know, the Republicans had a lot of wind at their back to begin the year. 
Uh, they were coming off of a, a big election victory in Virginia with Governor Glenn Youngkin winning in a state that Biden carried uh, convincingly in the most recent presidential election, and then had a series of wins in some uh, special elections. Then June happened and Dobbs' decision, uh, essentially kicking Roe v. Wade back to the states, really changed the narrative for a little while. Uh, it energized the Democratic base and essentially even the playing field, as you said. So uh, both Republicans and Democrats came out of the summer very energized. Uh, one other issue was looming large in, uh, in June, July, and that was President Trump. Uh, if you remember, we had the raid on Mar-a-Lago. How, how and, can we uh, forget the press coverage was uh, incessant? It was, and and you really saw uh, President Biden and and the Democrats trying to bring former President Trump into the fray, uh, bring him back into the battlefield. Uh, and I think the calculation there was knowing that uh, if you had a uh, a choice between Biden and Trump, then that was going to be a pretty level playing ground to fight upon. Um, but you know these other issues we talked about before this really have have come come back into the fray, and and I think they're top of mind to voters right now. So I look at Dobbs right now as we enter these final stretches as not having as big of an impact on those pocketbook issues that we discussed, uh, especially with the, the economy and inflation. Okay, and, and what do you think in terms of Dobbs that impact might be on on independents specifically? Right, you mentioned earlier. Republicans are certainly energized. Uh, Dem Democrats, I still think, are pretty energized. Um, if for no other reason, uh, you know, they dislike Donald Trump and Donald Trump's party, even though he's not on the ballot. And so I think we know where the uh, partisans are. But where are those independents uh, and how do you think they're going to break late? Well, I, I would just point out one thing in particular with independents uh, is, is a lot of these voters have not been paying attention to this election until post-Labor Day. So a lot of the noise around Dobbs happened in June, July, August. And so you almost think that the Democratic Party may have peaked a little too early in terms of that that decision and projecting the, uh, the outcome of that decision. Uh, I think they put a little too much political calculation into Dobbs and they ran commercials almost exclusively over uh, abortion, women's rights to choose. Um, and then we saw a pivot just about two weeks ago, Charles, as uh, as a lot of their internal polling was showing them that it didn't have as big of a, a factor in a lot of independence minds as the economy and inflation. So right now, according to Gallup, uh, Biden's net approval among independents is underwater. It's minus 14, which is, uh, it's definitely a big number to overcome. Um, on the generic ballot, as we talked about earlier, independents are breaking towards Republicans by about six to seven points, uh, which again, it doesn't sound like a huge number, but it, it really is when you think about these races coming down to a few percentage points. All right, let's look at one more kind of general factor indicator before we get more specifically into the fight for control of the House and the Senate and roll up our sleeves. And that, that last factor, is candidate recruitment and quality, right? So uh, candidate recruitment and quality is always important. It's always, uh, you know, always want to recruit the best people to run for, for office. And where do you think the parties have come down this cycle on candidate recruitment quality? Who's done a better job? And is there a difference between the recruitment in the House versus the Senate? 
Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely a difference between uh, the quality of candidates that the uh, Republican challengers in the House and the Senate recruited. Looking at the House, uh, Republicans have done a, a very strong job of recruiting candidates. Uh, they have multicultural, multi-generational. Uh, they have candidates that really fit the districts that they're running in, whether you're looking at the border in Texas or more uh, swing areas like Rhode Island, uh, where they've recruited a, a very pragmatic candidate who's leading in the polls. So I think the House Republicans have done a very strong job. In the Senate, uh, in terms of recruitment, it's been less than stellar. In a lot of these Senate primaries, on the Republican side, you had candidates that veered far to the right, and now they're having to come back and, and moderate some. And uh, you'll hear a lot post-election, uh, if these candidates are victorious, uh, they were recruited by President Trump, largely. So that may be something that he touts after this election if they get across the finish line. Okay. Now, now, a rising tide does lift all boats, right? And so depending on how favorable the environment might be for Republicans, candidate recruitment and quality may not matter as much. It, you know, and Sometimes in wave elections, it doesn't. I guess the question, Nathan, that is, how big is the wave going to be? And let's start talking about that in the U.S. House. And we mentioned history earlier as, you know, sometimes giving us that prequel Right, learning from history as to what might happen in, in the upcoming election. And when you look at history in the U.S. House and what has transpired in a president's uh, midterm election, what does that tell us? Well, since 1958, looking at the House, the president's party loses a net average of 25 seats in these midterm elections. Uh, some years it's larger, some years slightly smaller. And a lot of that depends upon the base that the uh, party is starting from. So right now, as you know, uh, Democrats control the U.S. House by a five-seat margin. Uh, Republicans are at 212 seats right now. So they're, the base that they're starting from is pretty high comparatively right now. If you talk to a lot of political you know, pundits right now, they're projecting Republicans to gain anywhere from 15 to 35 seats. And some are even going up to 40 seats right now. So... That seems to be the playing field in terms of net gains for the Republicans right now. I know that's a large field. Yeah, that's a pretty wide range, Nathan. I'm not going to let you slide away on that. <laughs> We're going to try to hold you to a tighter range for our listeners. So uh, Brass Tax, Nathan, asking you today, and I know we're two weeks out, uh, tighten that range up a little bit or maybe give me a number, right? A plus or minus. But what do you think in terms of the House? How many seats Republicans are going to gain? Well, just a few weeks ago, I would have told you Republicans would gain a net of 20 to 25 seats. Uh, as of today, I'm increasing that by about 10 seats. I think they're more uh, likely to gain a net increase of 30, maybe 35 seats when the dust settles. And we're hearing from a lot of uh, Democratic campaigns that their internal numbers are not looking strong. Right now, that's with independents breaking against them over the last couple of weeks and on into the election day. So if you're a Democrat incumbent right now and you're sitting in the mid 40s, you're definitely concerned about being able to get up to that 49, 50 percent range. And with that in mind, I think Republicans are going to have a very strong night and win some seats that are unexpected that may be uh, uh, lean Democrat by 12 or 14 points. 
Wow. Okay. So um, obviously with Republicans only currently in the minority by, by five seats, uh, that means that uh, they are very, very likely to get the majority in the U.S. House and also have a sizable majority next Congress, which uh, will give uh, the House Republican leadership some breathing room as they try to move their agenda uh, through that chamber. Uh, and speaking of chambers, now let's move on to what is known as the upper chamber. Uh, you and I are former House staffers, so I don't really take kindly to that that <laughs> description. But we are going to use that because uh, that is the parlance. Uh, so now switching to the U.S. Senate. Again, let's take a look at history. And why don't you tell our listeners uh, what history tells us about the fight for control of the U.S. Senate? Sure. Well, since 1958 in the U.S. Senate, President's Party loses a net average of three to four seats in these midterm elections. And the political winds are really starting to uh, show us that that may hold true this cycle uh, may not be quite that high, but it looks like Republicans at this point, with the way things are moving, are, are stand to gain a few seats in the Senate. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's dig a little deeper and talk about those competitive races in the Senate and uh, how, how many are out there. I mean, my estimation, you've got about 10 or so, and uh, that the parties are basically defending about an equal number of, you know, five each. Let's start with those seats where the Democrats are in uh, plain defense and talk about those. And let's start with what I think is probably the most likely uh, seat to flip from D's to R's, and that's uh, Nevada. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this is this is the most likely seat in, uh, in either chamber now to flip. And in Nevada, you have an incumbent Democratic senator who's routinely polling in the low to mid 40s. And her Republican challenger, Adam Laxalt, is uh, is polling a few points ahead consistently. Uh, I don't have to tell you that if you're an incumbent senator and you're polling around 43, 44%, it's gonna be very difficult to make up that, uh, that five or six points that you need to, to pull out a close victory. So. I think Nevada goes Republicans' way. Okay, and what about some some of the other uh, Democrat seats? Say, uh, everyone's got their eye on on Georgia. Let's talk about Georgia next, and then let's talk uh, Arizona after that. You bet, Charles. Uh, well, in Georgia, you have incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock against challenger Herschel Walker. Uh, I'm sure people have seen the news uh, if they're paying attention to politics. Uh, um, both these candidates, uh, they both have had some struggles over the last few months. And, uh, and are less appealing to a lot of the voters there. Uh, I will say it's a dead heat right now. Georgia's unique though, that uh, in that you need to win 50 plus one in order to avoid a runoff. And I see it unlikely that either of these candidates will clear that 50% mark. So I think we're looking at a runoff on December 6th. Okay, so that's Georgia. And in Arizona, that race seems to be tightening. Yeah, in Arizona, you have incumbent Mark Kelly, uh, against Republican challenger Blake Masters. This one was largely written off just a month ago. Uh, most people felt like uh, Senator Kelly had the advantage heading into this. But Arizona has a history of, of having very close Senate elections. And I see that being no different this time. In fact, uh, Blake Masters has narrowed the ballot to about two and a half points right now, where he's only trailing by two and a half. And I will note, Charles, that if you look back over the last four Senate elections in Arizona, Republicans outperformed 
this ballot question by 3.3 points. So with that in mind, it would appear that Masters has drawn this into a dead even, may even have a small advantage. And then uh, other Democrat seats, you got New Hampshire, Washington State and Colorado. Those all seem to be in play. I'd say the one that may drop off there would be Washington State, although Republicans have a great candidate. We're getting a little tight on time, Nathan. Um, so why don't you quickly talk about New Hampshire? You bet. New Hampshire, uh, again, history of having close elections. And I see this one as being very tight as well. Uh, maybe a slight edge to the Democrat. Uh, this is where Republican candidates uh, do matter. And the Republican candidate there uh, may not have enough to cross the finish line. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if if, uh, if Don Bolduck, the Republican, pulls up and pulls off an upset in New Hampshire. Uh, the only thing I would note on Colorado and Washington, as you mentioned, just to be uh, fighting competitive races in these states really speaks to the landscape. Uh, Washington, President Biden won by 20 points in the presidential election, and uh, Colorado he won by 14 points. So that just shows you uh, the headwinds that Democrats are facing this cycle. All right, let's quickly talk about those seats where Republicans are defending. Uh, and again, it seems like the environment's very favorable to Republicans, but they still have some incumbents that are in tough races. Uh, you've got to start with uh, Pennsylvania. That seems to be garnering the most attention. Yeah, absolutely. In Pennsylvania, it's an open seat. Uh, you have Democrat John Fetterman, uh, current statewide office holder against Dr. Oz. And Fetterman has been holding the lead pretty consistently up until the last few weeks. Uh, he had about a six, seven point lead up until a month ago, and Dr. Oz really started to narrow that margin. Uh, today, polls are showing this to be a one point race, uh, generally giving Fetterman the edge by one point, but you clearly have Dr. Oz with the wind at his back. And if I'm projecting this out to two weeks, from now, I would see Dr. Oz kind of being in command of this race, a slight command of this race come election day. All right. Uh, and then other states, uh, we'll go through them quick. Ohio, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Florida. Do you see any of those uh, seats flipping from Republicans to Democrats? So if, if this were a uh, an election year with the president approval rating, maybe in the upper 40s or 50, uh, I think these would be very competitive races. I think they are still competitive races. But when you look at the dynamics that we discussed to begin the podcast uh, with with the headwinds the Democrats are facing, the economy, crime and safety, presidential approval rate in the low 40s, uh, I, I just don't see Democrats being able to knock off Republicans in Ohio, North Carolina, uh, Wisconsin or, or Florida, Charles. So then the upshot, Nathan, right? I've got to ask you this question, just like I kind of held your feet to the fire in the House. So who's going to control uh, the U.S. Senate next Congress? And uh, how many seats do you think are going to flip? It sounds like it's going to be uh, Republicans picking up uh, you know, control. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but based on our readers can probably read uh, between the lines here. So who do you think is going to control and what's the margin going to be? Yeah, I, I would say Republicans end up controlling, winning the, the House or winning the House and the U.S. Senate. I think they win the Senate by anywhere from one to three net seats. And I'll, I'll give you some reasoning behind that. Uh, if you look at history, Charles, these elections in the Senate in particular generally break in one direction. So if you look back to 2018, uh, you had 12 competitive races, nine of them 
uh, broke for the Democrats. Nine of the 12. 2014, 10 of the 12 broke for Republicans. 2010, seven of the nine broke for Republicans. So looking back at history, uh, when you have competitive races, they almost never split down the middle. You usually have one party winning uh, two thirds and usually three quarters of those races. So if we have 10 competitive races, uh, Republicans should win seven or eight of them. All right, and that would mean uh, Republicans then regaining control of the U.S. Senate as well. Well, we want to thank all of our Agency Nation radio listeners listening today. Hopefully you found this podcast informative and please go out and vote.